Welcome to Wallachia. Chapter 6, Home at Last. When the Count discovered that Corina and Dominic had gone, he burst into the parlor where Elisabetta was talking with the other girls, his eyes raging and red. He screamed at her for letting Corina escape, then picked her up off the ground with one arm, threw her across the room, and ordered two of the guards to take her away. Three more guards came in, with orders not to let any of the other girls leave. The maid scurried away, and the guards instructed each girl to return to her room. Two of them brought Diana and Freya to their doors and shoved them inside. When the Count had flung Elisabetta across the room, Irina had screamed and huddled in the far corner. A third guard came to her, waited for her to pull herself up, then escorted her into the hallway. Her room was several doors down, but she stopped in front of the door next to Karina's that she had seen her go into the night she'd fled. This one's mine, she said. The guard nodded and let her go inside. Irina didn't know what she expected to find here, just that she knew it was the last place anyone had seen Karina go before she escaped. Through the crack under the closed door, she could see the shadow of the guard still standing there. After looking around the room for a moment, she went out into the balcony and saw the rope ladder Karina had used to climb down, still attached to the stone railway. She took hold of the rope and descended to the floor below. Elsewhere, the Count had ordered the captain of the Order of the Dragon brought before him to punish him for allowing Dominic to abandon his post. As a result, Irina was able to move within the castle without encountering anyone, but there was a lot of activity near the gates. Eventually, she found a hiding place in a small nook, waited until morning, what it seemed to be safe to move, and left through a temporarily unguarded gate. Before his arrest, the captain of the guard had ordered some of his men to rouse the village. They'd gone throughout the town, telling the townspeople that a guard had abducted one of the count's guests and asked if anyone had seen them. The man who had given them a ride on his cart came forward and was brought before the count himself for questioning. As Irina made her way out of the gate and down to the village, she saw that a large crowd had gathered. She slipped in among them and followed its flow until it led her to what everyone was coming to see. Three large spikes had been erected there very recently. Elisabetta, the guard captain, and the old man had all been freshly impaled upon them. Irina shrieked when she saw them, then fell silent when she realized she recognized two of the pained and lifeless faces on display. A portion of those assembled were staying to praise the Count's form of justice. Others were coming to see, then moving away to make room for more. The commotion the public execution caused in the village allowed Irina to pass through unnoticed. In the initial hours, townsfolk came to look in grotesque fascination at the site. Soon, they convinced themselves that the three had all deserved what had happened in fealty to their count whom they admired and feared. While the town gawked at the terrible spectacle by the castle's gates, Irina stole a horse and rode away safely. Many days later, she arrived at home, half-starved and in a daze. She hardly spoke for several days, but in time gave her account to her family. She hadn't been privy to much of what had gone on in the castle those last few days, but after listening to what she said, they immediately sent for her uncle, a baron in Moravia. Most would have discounted her ravings as those of a scared girl who hadn't known what she had seen. As fate would have it, however, Baron Vordenberg was one of the few people alive doing research into Nosferatu. At the time, vampires were still the stuff of local superstition. Some believed vampires were the result of illegitimate children having illegitimate children. Others made little distinction between the vampire and the werewolf. What they really were, their abilities and limitations, etc., hadn't yet been the subject of rigorous scientific research. Within a few years, Dom Antoine Augustin Calmet would publish his treatise on the apparition of spirits and on vampires or revenants of Hungary, Moravia, et al., which included actual accounts of vampire activity in Eastern Europe. His research, along with that of Baron Vordenberg, aided by his niece, Vordenberg Irina, would form the beginning of a library of research on vampires. 
Over the decades, the work would be picked up by others, such as Dr. Martin Heselius and, in time, Professor Abraham Van Helsing, an account of a girl who claimed to have been a prisoner of a vicious lord in Transylvania, stories from a village in northern Wallachia, and more would allow Van Helsing, almost exactly 150 years later, to finally help put an end to Count Dracula on the very road Irina had so recently written down. None of that would help Corina, Dominic, or the residents of a small village about to celebrate the end of a sparse harvest season, where Demetria had already spilled a bottle of sunflower oil. Demetria had planned to make a garlic tart for the night's feast. She'd looked out of her window and noticed that the wild rose bush Corina loved so much had died in the summer's drought. Thinking of Corina, who should have been serving as the princess in the festival that night, another girl had been chosen in her place while she was studying at the castle, Demetria had gotten distracted. She'd bought a bottle of sunflower oil from a group of Romani who'd passed through, but hadn't put it away properly yet, so it was sitting on the counter when she got out the garlic, and she'd broken the bottle and spilled its contents all over the garlic, which she'd had to discard. Vampires, or those who have been victimized by a vampire and would soon become one, cannot abide the scent of wild roses nor garlic. As it was, these odd circumstances, the drought killing off the rose bush, the garlic having to be disposed of, allowed the house to be a comfortable place for Karina as a liter wagon pulled up outside. Jason was in the back replacing a cart's wheel when he heard his wife's scream. He came around the corner to see her on her knees, crying. Then he saw a man with someone in his arms walk into the house. He ran inside to find Dominic Adinu carrying his daughter into her bedroom and laying her in bed. Stunned though he was, he pulled Corina up and embraced her, kissing her on the head. After a minute, he released her, stood, and pulled Dominic into his arms, thanking him for returning her. Demetria came in and flung herself onto the bed. Her long, beautiful hair fell across Karina's cheek, and when Dimitri went to brush it away, her hand grazed the girl's face, and she drew it back in shock at how cold she was. She sat up, appraising her daughter, and noticed that her entire complexion was exceptionally pale. The priest who had accompanied them was dabbing her face with a damp cloth. Karina caught a brief look at the crucifix he wore and made a feeble hissing noise, which he took as a sign of her declining state. I'm afraid she doesn't have much time. Father, will you, as we discussed, asked Dominic. The man nodded. Now that her family is here to witness, it would be my pleasure. Dimitri retrieved the white dress she'd made that Karina was supposed to have worn for the flower festival and dressed her in it while the priest went to his cart. Her breath had grown stertorous, and the mere act of sitting up to be dressed seemed to take all her strength. Once she was ready and the priest had returned with vestments and a Bible, Karina and Dominic were wed. After the ceremony, during which Karina had remained in bed, Dominic knelt beside her and held her hand. It was hard for her to form a full thought. The seeds, Tata. I'm here, said Jason. I'd love to have another pomegranate, if I could just go back there. Oh, my little sprout, said Jason. I promised I'd never let anything happen to you. Corina looked at her father, then smiled. The flesh of her lips looked thin, as if it had retracted somehow, and her teeth seemed to shine in the dim light of the room. She started to laugh, then a cough came on. When it was done, she said, The bad things that happen to us aren't to be worried about, just the bad things we choose to do. I tried, I really did, to be good. I hope it mattered. The priest had recommended she try some wine to regain her constitution. Dominic went to pour some and returned with a glass along with a small plate of food. Corina pushed it away, the sight of it repellent to her. She closed her eyes for a moment, and her breathing seemed to ease some. Father was told she'd marry a monster. Your father? He's here. Do you want him again? said Dominic. She took his hand again. No, Psyche's. But I didn't let him. The Count. I married you instead. I got to make the choice. I know, said Dominic, and you've made me so happy. You've freed me from his spell. Their marriage had lasted perhaps an hour. Two days later, in the autumn of 1741, 
In a village in Transylvania that would soon burn to the ground, something terrible came into the world. Count Dracula had envisioned a strong Transylvania. He wanted to force it to move into the 18th century and beyond. He had no time for the pastoral simplicity of happy farmers. He wanted strength and decadence. His country had been passed between different empires for centuries. He was tired of new kings and sultans and emperors. He wanted Transylvania for itself. He'd restrained himself from victimizing the people of Transylvania. He'd turned the Order of the Dragon into his own personal guard and used their blood to sustain him so that he could build himself up as a noble leader. His people loved him, and he made sure that when he did take a life from their ranks, it was not so often or so obvious as to arouse suspicion. Corina's discovery of this had broken his discipline, and his attack on her had been rash. Unable to stop himself from being the monster he truly was, he'd allowed his bloodlust to come over him. Drinking from his bodyguards required restraint. He didn't intend to kill them, and usually didn't, and made sure to give each time to recover before he drained them again. Never did the Count allow them to drink of his own blood. Once the Count had made an example of Elisabetta and the others, he set to tracking down the escaped Corina and Dominic. When he finally came to the village where he'd first stolen her away, he instead found a slaughterhouse. The kind, gentle soul who had been Corina had departed when her body died. In its place, something monstrous was now in charge. The vessel she had once been, with its beautiful dark hair and kind face, now instead bore voluptuous ruby-red lips and sharp, white, shining teeth. Where she had been sweet, the vampire Corina was cruel. Where in life she had brightened the day of everyone she met, in death she brought only more death, visiting upon the townsfolk all the evil the Count's own malice had inflicted on the sweet princess of springtime. When Corina was eleven, she'd fallen while balancing on a stone wall. Her friend ran to get help, finding the blacksmith nearby. He'd carried her to his shop, washed off the wound, and bandaged her. His wife had given her a bowl of fresh, sweet cherries to eat to cheer her up. Two days ago, he'd come home to find this creature who had once been that young girl, her face stained red, in his home. His wife had invited her in. He set fire to the building, hoping to destroy her, and the fire had spread. Now the whole village burned. Amid the flames and ashes, the Count enjoyed a familiar meal that Corina had saved just for him. Dominic had brought her home out of love. He understood what his former master was, but had no way to know what his wife would become. Count Dracula left with his new bride in a carriage pulled by black horses. As a wedding gift, he gave her an entire wing of his castle and everyone in it. Thank you for listening. That was the end of the Flowers of Transylvania story. In two weeks, we'll move forward 75 years and start the first chapter of Wallachia. The vampire Corina will show up eventually, but first you'll see Count Dracula and the Order of the Dragon and meet a whole new cast of characters. If you've enjoyed Flowers of Transylvania, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at WallachiaNet or on the web at Wallachia.net. And please tell your friends, it's hard building an audience for something like this that I'm doing entirely on my own, so any word of mouth I can get is beyond appreciated. Thank you.